On today's episode of Based on a True Story, we're going to compare history with the 1991 film JFK. Written and directed by Oliver Stone, JFK was nominated for eight Oscars and came home with two of them, one for Best Cinematography and another for Best Film Editing. There are very few events in American history that have the same amount of conspiracies surrounding them as the assassination of President John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963. And one of those conspiracies is exactly what the movie covers. So, by extension, that's what we'll be doing as we compare history with the movie JFK. I'm Dan LeFebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before starting our story today, there's two things we need to do. First, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Lee Harvey Oswald was killed just days after the assassination of JFK. Number two, Jim Garrison received top-secret information from a man only known as X. Number three, to date... Clay Shaw is the only person put on trial for the assassination of JFK. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, you'll find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll find out which one is a lie. It's the one we don't mention. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. The last thing to do before getting into the meat of our story today is find out what we'll be covering over on the producer's feed next week. And that would be Wonder Woman. A few months back, we learned about the true story of the author of the superhero in Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. But this time, we'll take a look at some of the historical elements that we saw in the 2017 superhero movie. So you'll get that on the producer's feed next week. If you aren't on the producer's feed, you can get access to that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. All right, now let's begin our dive into the true story behind the movie, JFK. Okay, so I know I just said we were going to begin our dive into the true story, but I also think this is worth saying up front. As I mentioned in the introduction, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy has a ton of conspiracy theories circling around it. And while we will be looking at one of those threads in this episode, it's also worth pointing out that, to be completely honest, there's absolutely nothing I can say in this episode that will make everyone happy. Every episode of this podcast covers a different topic. Each of those topics are things that people dedicate their entire lives to, whether it's researching those topics, spending years studying them, or even living through those true events in history. And perhaps that is never truer than the story today. Some people are convinced one version of the story is true, while others are convinced a completely different version of that story is true. And for the most part, those different versions all make some really great points. But the truth is that there are always going to be some things we can't say 
is 100% truth with absolute certainty that will get everyone to believe it. People spend years and years on this subject, and I know I've said this before, but I feel it bears repeating again. There's no way I can get to the level of detail in a single podcast episode that will answer every single question surrounding the story of JFK's death. I just wanted to clarify that up front before I start getting emails about how I didn't cover their favorite theory about JFK's assassination. Although, with that said, I would love to hear your favorite theory, so please send them on. I just hope you realize that our purpose here today is not to cover topics that people have spent decades unraveling and piecing together in a single episode. We are here to compare the movie to history. And even then, there's plenty in the theory laid forth in the film that could be an entire series of podcasts by itself. Okay, with all of that said, our movie today begins by setting things up with a range of historical footage from figures like President Eisenhower, Senator John F. Kennedy just before his election, and Martin Luther King Jr. to others like Fidel Castro. Behind this footage, we hear an uncredited Martin Sheen as the narrator explaining that the now President Kennedy has inherited a secret war against Castro's dictatorship in Cuba. That war is run by the CIA and Cuban exiles and culminates with the Bay of Pigs invasion in April of 1961, which was a massive failure. The narrator continues saying that after the failed operation, President Kennedy took public responsibility for it, but privately claimed the CIA lied to him about it. Then, to make matters worse, the voiceover explains the tension grew even higher when President Kennedy announced there were Soviet nuclear missiles in Cuba, just 90 miles away from the United States. For today's movie, though, the narrator continues to explain there were more wars in Laos and Vietnam going on, too. Then it cuts to historical footage of a speech that Kennedy gave where he's talking about how we, as Americans, mustn't enforce peace upon the world through weapons of war, but rather that we must re-examine our own attitudes toward the Soviet Union with our most basic common link. We all inhabit the same planet. All of that tension between the U.S. and Cuba really happened. I won't really go into too much depth here, really because we already covered this on episode 115 of Based on a True Story when we learned about the movie Che. And it is true that Kennedy gave that speech the movie is referring to at the American University in Washington, D.C. on June 10, 1963. The movie actually cuts together different parts of the speech to make it seem like he said things back to back. But even so, I think it does a pretty decent job of gathering the essence of the speech. It's too long to include here, but I'll make sure to have a link to it in the show notes for this episode. Basically, President Kennedy's speech alluded to the Second World War. He talked about how a new war wouldn't be the same as World War II. It'd be a new kind of war. A kind of war filled with nuclear powers that would stretch to the corners of the globe. It'd be the kind of war that would be pointless as an attempt to bring about peace. So, instead, his speech suggested reevaluating the idea of peace. First, believe that it is attainable. Second, believe that the path to peace does not come through nuclear wars, but through an understanding that we're all just people inhabiting the same planet. 
After this, back in the movie, the historical footage blends from the days leading up to and during Kennedy's presidency to the day of the assassination. We see clips edited into a sequence that blends into a mixture of real historical footage and fictional shots made for the film that really are made to look like they're historical. As the music gets more intense, we can see one of the clips the sequence is cutting to is a clock. It's 1228. The president's motorcade is driving down the road to crowds on both sides. 1229. More shots of the motorcade. 1230. The motorcade continues turning down a street. Just then, the screen goes black. We hear one shot, then another, and another. The movie is showing the correct timing here. It was on Friday, November 22nd, 1963, at 12.30 p.m., when three shots rang out over Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas. Even though not all the footage that we see in the movie is historical, the footage that we see of JFK getting shot is. Not to get too far ahead of our story because the movie mentions it later, but some of that footage comes from the Zapruder film. That's the name for the footage that clothes manufacturer Abraham Zapruder was filming as President Kennedy drove by. He was just capturing the event of the president's motorcade passing by for personal use. Little did he know the frames that he would capture would turn into one of the most famous pieces of footage in American history as they depict the gruesome assassination of JFK. The movie doesn't show at all, and for good reason. I've got a link to the footage over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com if you want to see the whole thing, but I will warn you, it's tough to watch. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Going back to the movie's timeline, after President Kennedy is shot, the story cuts to Jim Garrison. He's played by Kevin Costner and is the district attorney in New Orleans, Louisiana. That's about 450 miles or just over 700 kilometers away from where President Kennedy was shot in Dallas, Texas. And despite the distance, Jim Garrison stumbles upon a possible connection to the shooting in his hometown of New Orleans. That connection is Joe Pesci's character, David Ferry. When Jim sits down to chat with David, it's clear that there's something a bit off with his story. 
he's changing details from what his colleagues apparently said, forgetting other details, and seems to be a bit on edge as he's chain-smoking in Jim's office. Jim continues his investigation, but then something unexpected happens. Lee Harvey Oswald is murdered. The man who was in custody for the assassination of the president was shot and killed by a Dallas nightclub owner named Jack Ruby while being transported by the police. Oswald is played by Gary Oldman in the film, while Jack Ruby is played by Brian Doyle Murray. For the most part, that is all true. By that, I mean, of course, the specifics of scenes and conversations are dramatized, but no one expects a movie to be 100% accurate. So as much as you can expect a movie to be true, it is here. Jim Garrison really was the district attorney in New Orleans at the time. David Ferry was a real person, too, and was someone that Jim Garrison started looking into soon after the JFK assassination. Probably the most inaccurate part of this whole scene with Jim Garrison talking to David Ferry was how guilty the movie made him look from the onset through him fidgeting, telling lies, and the nervous chain-smoking. In truth, when David found out that Jim was looking for him, he voluntarily came into Jim Garrison's office with his attorney. Although, on the other side of that, if you recall in the movie, one of the most suspicious pieces to David Ferry's story is his claim that he drove from New Orleans to Houston just to go ice skating with some friends. And that bit is true. According to the Warren Commission report, that's the official report from the U.S. government on the assassination of President Kennedy, David Ferry told the FBI that he and two of his friends drove the 350 miles or some 560 kilometers to Winterland Skating Rink in Houston, Texas on the night of the assassination. His reason for the trip was that he was thinking about opening a skating rink of his own in New Orleans and he just wanted to see how they were run. Not sure really why he felt the need to drive all the way to Houston to do that, but that was his story, so you can see why it would seem a bit odd. As for the movie's mention of Dallas nightclub owner Jack Ruby killing Lee Harvey Oswald while he was in police custody, I'm sure you already know that's true. In fact, if you're familiar with the JFK assassination at all, you've probably already seen the Pulitzer Prize winning photograph by Bob Jackson, who happened to snap a photo at the exact moment Jack Ruby pulled the trigger, killing Oswald. That happened on November 24th, 1963, just two days after Kennedy was assassinated. It's also worth pointing out that the movie is correct in showing that at the time, Oswald was not officially charged with JFK's death. He was in custody for the murder of a police officer while he was trying to evade capture after JFK's assassination. But that didn't mean that people already didn't suspect him. In fact, there's some reports that the reason why Jack Ruby killed Oswald was not only in retaliation of JFK's death, but also to save Jackie Kennedy from having to return to Dallas to go through the inevitable trial. Of course, as the movie implies, there are others who believe Jack was involved in the conspiracy theory and killed Oswald as one way of tying up a loose end. Back in the movie, we see some text on screen to let us know that three years have passed. With Oswald's death, everyone presumes that the assassination is well, solved. But then there's a scene where we see Kevin Cosner's version of Jim Garrison up until the wee hours of the morning pouring over the Warren Commission report. As he does, he starts to disbelieve what he's reading. There's no way this could be true. In the next scene, Jim and the two guys working for him, Lou Ivan and Bill Broussard, 
They're together heading to a building at 531 Lafayette Street in New Orleans, where in 1963, an ex-FBI agent by the name of Guy Bannister had an office. He had since retired, but worked during his retirement as a private investigator out of the building. Then, heading around the corner of the building to the other side of it, Jim points out that this same building on the other side has a different street address. This side is 544 Camp Street. Jim continues to explain to the other two men that 544 Camp Street is the address Lee Harvey Oswald had stamped on pro-Castro leaflets he handed out three years before JFK's assassination. That is... Well... I can't really say if that's true or untrue. The reason for that is because this is a great example of some conflicting stories, and what you believe to be the truth really depends on what version of the story you believe. So let's just focus on the facts that we do know. It is true that Jim Garrison pushed this theory of Bannister being connected through the Camp Street and Lafayette Street addresses. He wrote about it in his book that the movie is partially based on. And it is true that those two streets connect with a building on the corner. You can look it up on Google Maps. When they're investigating into Oswald's background, the FBI found out that he might have rented an office on Camp Street. They got this because, just like the movie shows, Oswald stamped his leaflets with the address of 544 Camp Street. But you see, that's not the only address he used. He also stamped some with his home address or a post office box. So the FBI thought perhaps he had rented an office, and that was supported by a letter they had of Oswald's where he wrote to the head of the Fair Play for Cuba committee that while he was trying to start a Cuba committee in New Orleans, he had rented an office, quote, as planned, end quote. But then the letter went on to say the office was closed three days later. It's also worth pointing out that even though Jim Garrison was correct in pointing out that 531 Lafayette and 544 Camp Street lead to the same building, he was incorrect on one assessment, that they go to the same office inside the building. According to a statement given by Sam Newman, the guy who owned that building, the 544 Camp Street entrance stamped on Oswald's leaflets opened up to a stairway that led to the second floor. On the other hand, Bannister's office at 531 Lafayette was ground level. There is no way to get from one to the other without going on the street and around the corner. Which, sure, you could do, but that's not the narrative either the movie or Jim Garrison was trying to tell. It's probably worth pointing out that Guy Bannister was anti-communist and was pretty far right-wing politically. Not really the kind of person you'd expect Oswald and his pro-Castro views to hang out with. You recall Fidel Castro's revolution was all about bringing communism to Cuba. At least that's how he publicly positioned it in the beginning. Again, we cover that more in the Che episode. On top of all of that, there's another odd thing to consider before deciding which version of the story you believe. You see, another man who used to have an office at 544 Camp Street was someone the movie never mentions, Carlos Bringer. Carlos headed up the Cuban Revolutionary Council out of that address for a few years before Oswald handed out the leaflets with that address on them. While Oswald was pro-Castro, the Cuban Revolutionary Council was vehemently anti-Castro. So some people think that perhaps Oswald put that address on his leaflets as a bit of a jab at the anti-Castro committee who used to be at 544 Camp Street. I say used to be because they didn't have an office there by the time Oswald was handing out his leaflets. 
Oh, and when he was deposed for the Warren Commission, Carlos mentioned something very interesting about the leaflets. In the movie, we can clearly see Oswald's name alongside the address of 544 Camp Street. But according to Carlos's testimony, he said none of the leaflets he saw that Oswald handed out had Oswald's name on them. At least not the ones that had 544 Camp Street. They had that address, but instead had a completely different name on them, A.J. Hedell. A few days later, Oswald was handing out more pamphlets in the street. This time they had his own name on them, but they had an address of 4907 Magazine Street. So in the end, the FBI determined that even though Oswald might have had an office on Camp Street, he probably didn't have it for long, and if so, it was rather unimportant if he did. Let's head back into the movie's timeline now because the next major plot point happens when Jim Garrison has a chat with a lawyer named Dean Andrews Jr. In the movie, Dean has a rather eccentric look as he's portrayed by John Candy. According to the film, Dean says he got a phone call from a man named Clay Bertrand. Clay asked Dean to be the legal representation for Lee Harvey Oswald in the assassination of the president. And that's true. Well, at least it's true that the real Dean Andrews told both the FBI and the Warren Commission that's what happened. According to Dean, the same day that President Kennedy was assassinated on November 22, 1963, he got a phone call from someone named Clay Bertrand. And just like the movie shows, Clay requested that Dean represent who was then the suspected gunman in the Kennedy shooting, Lee Harvey Oswald. However, what the movie doesn't show is that there's a very good possibility Dean Andrews made all of that up. People around Dean described him as someone that was known to stretch the truth at times if he thought it was amusing to do so. And because of this revelation of the mysterious phone call from a Clay Bertrand, Dean was investigated by many people. That included Jim Garrison, but as I mentioned just moments ago, it also included the FBI and the Warren Commission. It soon became apparent that Dean's testimonies to different people weren't quite the same. Things just didn't line up. In 1967, because of these conflicting statements, some of them made before the Orleans Parish Grand Jury, Dean was convicted of perjury. He appealed the sentence of 18 months in prison, and before long, the case was dropped. But of course, you don't see any of that in the movie. Speaking of which, going back to the film, after finding out that someone was wanting to hire a lawyer for Oswald, Kevin Costner's version of Jim Garrison decides to dig deeper. Things spiral even further as he finds out that Clay Bertrand is a name used by a man named Clay Shaw. He's played by Tommy Lee Jones in the movie. Clay Shaw is a well-off businessman in New Orleans, so his was a name Jim Garrison knew. Through another thread, Jim finds out about a relationship between Clay Shaw and Kevin Bacon's version of Willie O'Keefe. According to Willie, who is in prison for prostitution when Jim goes to talk to him, he was hired by Clay for his professional services. While he was hanging around Clay, though, Willie mentions to Jim that he saw Lee Harvey Oswald there, too. From here, Jim's investigation towards toward finding out what Clay Shaw is up to. Now, Clay Shaw was a real person. And it is true that Jim Garrison made the leap from Clay Bertrand to Clay Shaw. Willie O'Keefe, on the other hand, is a fictional character. And the way that the movie shows Jim Garrison finding out about Clay Bertrand is incorrect. The truth is much more simple, actually. And 
That is, Jim Garrison found out about Clay Bertrand from the Warren Commission, and he knew about the popular businessman Clay Shaw. So before long, a hunch turned into a belief that the two were one and the same man. I've mentioned the Warren Commission briefly throughout this episode, but soon after President Kennedy was assassinated, obviously the government launched an investigation into it. Officially, it was launched by President Lyndon B. Johnson, and it was named the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy. Unofficially, it was called the Warren Commission because the man leading the investigation was Chief Justice Earl Warren. He wasn't the only one, of course. There were 34 officially listed staff members, legal counsels, and assistants assigned to the project, and who knows how many unlisted FBI agents, police officers, and other law enforcement During the investigation for the Warren Commission, it was those investigators who found out about a call from a man claiming to be Clay Bertrand to the lawyer, Dean Andrews Jr. He did, like the movie shows, ask Dean to be the lawyer for Oswald. At least, that's according to what Dean told the investigators. We've already talked about how accurate those statements probably were. So, the Warren Commission report is where you'd turn to find the official story behind the assassination of JFK. Of course, we all know the official story by the U.S. government isn't always the same as the true story, but I'll leave it up to you to decide what to believe is the truth. Back in the movie, the next major plot point only adds fuel to the conspiracy. Ellen McElduff's character, a woman named Jean Hill, tells the investigators that there were shots that came from a grassy knoll across the way from where Oswald was located. She claims that she heard between four to six shots, but that Secret Service agents threatened her into saying that she only heard three shots and they came from the book depository. Well, that's certainly odd. Why would they do that so soon after the assassination? We also see some other footage, footage that the movie makes look like it's real historical footage, except we know it's not because, well, for one, it's, a very young Vincent D'Onofrio in it. (laughs) But the point of this footage in the film is to give more witness testimony. They swear they heard shots coming from the grassy knoll, and while everyone else was still trying to figure out what they just witnessed happen right in front of them, there was a man running by the knoll. As is the case for most of these plot points, there's the official line, and then there's some theories posed by others who have investigated the case in a more unofficial manner. Regardless of what you believe, both officially and unofficially, the movie is correct in showing that there were people who claimed to have heard shots from the grassy knoll. They also claimed to have seen a man running. Some even got as detailed as saying the man who was running was a policeman, and he was running away from the president's motorcade. There's even a photo someone snapped of the policeman running some 30 seconds or so after Kennedy was shot. So that must mean he was chasing a gunman by the knoll, right? Why else would he be running away from the president's motorcade? Or maybe, as others have theorized, perhaps the policeman was the man that people saw running. Another version of the story suggests that the policeman was running towards a fellow officer, more of a, what the, just happened? Officially, though, even though there were reports of shots coming from the grassy knoll, the explanation was simply that people heard shots and didn't identify where they were coming from correctly. To understand that, you'll have to understand how the buildings are laid out in Dealey Plaza where Kennedy was shot. 
Elm Street is the name of the road where Kennedy was shot. As you go down Elm Street, you'll find tall buildings, roughly six or seven stories each on either side of the road. Then it opens up to a small little city park named Dealey Plaza. On one end of the park, there's the grassy knoll, which is just a grassy patch of land. If you've ever visited it, it's really not that big. And if you happen to visit the area today, you'll see a white X on Elm Street. That's where it happened. The official story goes that when Oswald pulled the trigger, he was shooting out a sixth floor window. The sound from those shots bounced around the other buildings and echoed over the open area by the little city park, making it sound like there were more than three shots fired from that direction. So, yes, it is true that people claim to have heard more than three shots. And, yes, it is true that some people thought the shots sounded like they came from the area of the grassy knoll. But they were most likely hearing the echoing shots of gunshots in a busy street and had a hard time identifying exactly where it came from. At least, that's the official story. Going back to the movie, things take a dive into the conspiracy world when Kevin Costner's version of Jim Garrison is contacted by a secret government agent. He identifies himself only as X and is portrayed in the film by Donald Sutherland. According to X, Jim Garrison is on the right path. He explains that President Kennedy is hated by the CIA, the FBI, and even the mob. And by Jim being on the right path, he's saying that the assassination was orchestrated by members in those government agencies, and Oswald was just a patsy. Oh, and it is true that Oswald said he was, quote, just a patsy, end quote. He refused to confess and instead claimed he was just a patsy mere hours before he was killed by Jack Ruby. The movie makes sure to show that, and that is something that a lot of people refer to to suggest that he was the fall guy for a much larger conspiracy. As X explains, the reason for the U.S. government wanting to take out their own president is because they were furious about the failed Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba. They also didn't like how he was weakening, to borrow from what we heard President Eisenhower say in the beginning of the movie, quote, the military-industrial complex, end quote. Perhaps most importantly to this was an idea X explains that President Kennedy was planning on withdrawing from Vietnam during his second term, something these secret government agents didn't agree with. So, they did something about it. Yet again, this is a story that the movie tells somewhat accurately to the conspiracy theorist version, but a much bigger question is whether that version of the story itself is true or not. Let's start with the character of X. He is fictional. Director Oliver Stone admitted this, but was quick to add that he based X on Air Force Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty. What's interesting about this is that the movie is correct in showing that Prouty believed there was a bigger conspiracy at play. He believed not only that the CIA was behind it, for mostly the reasons we just talked about, but that even the Federal Reserve was involved too. Prouty was pretty outspoken about his beliefs, so you can find quite a bit by doing a search for him. A brief overview, though, not only has him connecting JFK to the CIA, like we see in the movie, but also that the U.S. Air Force had custody of two extraterrestrial bodies, and, of course, that flying saucers were real. He also believed that the Jonestown mass suicide was not a mass suicide at all, but a mass murder by U.S. intelligence agencies. He also believed that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was poisoned by Winston Churchill. 
And while this wasn't until decades later, he also pushed the idea that the same secret government team that took out JFK also took out Princess Grace of Monaco and Princess Diana. In the movie, all this ties together for Jim Garrison as X explains the conspiracy and were led to believe Clay Shaw was the mastermind behind the assassination on behalf of the CIA. There's one catch to that, though. Jim Garrison never met Colonel Prouty until many years after Clay Shaw was put on trial. The truth is that Jim Garrison never had a secret informant. All that was added for the movie. The true story behind why Jim Garrison was led to believe Clay Shaw was the mastermind for the CIA in the plot to assassinate JFK is very complex, which could be why the movie tries to simplify things a little bit. But I'll try to recap the highlights here. It starts during World War II when Clay Shaw served on the U.S. Army Medical Corps. After the war, Clay became a successful businessman, but he still maintained connections in the government. In 1947, the CIA was formed with the intention of gathering information on other countries. Clay traveled to many countries for his business, but one of particular interest was Czechoslovakia. That country was of interest to the U.S. because within the span of one week in February of 1948, its government changed from a democratic state to a communist dictatorship. In 1948, Clay volunteered some information that he'd gathered while traveling abroad to the CIA. On its surface, that adds a connection between Clay Shaw and the CIA. That connection Seems a little less important when we back up and realize that the CIA had hundreds of thousands of civilians doing the exact same thing that Clay Shaw did. It was done through a department called the Domestic Contact Service, or DCS. Between 1948 and 1956, Clay delivered a total of 33 separate reports through DCS. There is no official reason for why he stopped in 1956. Well, you know, that's not entirely true. There was one. It's just not very helpful. Why the relationship ended after 1956 is not revealed in any of the recently declassified CIA files or Shaw's own papers. Whatever the reason, the documentary record is clear. Shaw was not handed off by the DCS and developed as a covert operative by the CIA's plans, now operations, directorate. The relationship just lapsed. That is a quote from the official government report on Clay Shaw's reason for stopping his service to the DCS. As you can see, there's not really a reason that we know. Interestingly, though, when Jim Garrison arrested Clay Shaw on March 1st, 1967, he didn't have any knowledge of a link to the CIA. He just thought Clay was involved in the assassination plot. As soon as Jim arrested Clay, the CIA started looking into Clay Shaw to see if Jim Garrison was onto something. That's when they discovered Clay had submitted information to DCS. As it happened, a guy who was in the New Orleans DCS office named Lloyd Ray was looking into Clay. He knew Clay personally from when Clay had been volunteering information to DCS. Just to play it safe and to make sure everyone knew about his personal relationship to the businessman now under investigation for allegedly assassinating the president, he sent a message to the CIA's general counsel explaining it. That's what caused things to blow up. Somehow, a newspaper in Rome caught wind of Lloyd's Cable. That paper, called Pesa Serra, published a connection between the New Orleans businessman Clay Shaw and the CIA. 
The same paper had previously printed an article in 1961, two years before Kennedy's assassination, claiming that the CIA was in league with a military coup in Algeria. That was the first connection Jim Garrison had to the conspiracy, and six years later, it resurfaced with this new article. They spread the story about a group in Rome called CMC, who they believed to be a sub-organization of the CIA, an organization that had ties to Clay Shaw. From there, it didn't take long for the stories to spread like wildfire in the media. On April 25, 1967, the New Orleans State's Item newspaper published a front-page story stating that the CIA was linked by evidence uncovered, quote, by an influential Italian newspaper, end quote. Before long, Clay Shaw was involved in a conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy on orders from the CIA. At least, that was the story that spread. Just a moment ago, I mentioned that Jim Garrison didn't know anything about Clay's connection to the CIA. The reason for that was because, at the time, DCS was a top-secret program. So, Jim Garrison didn't know anything about that when he was investigating Clay Shaw. He just knew about some threads that connected Clay to the CIA. What he didn't know was that those threads were through the DCS program and were also threads that, by the 1970s, also included hundreds of thousands of other businessmen and women like Clay Shaw who voluntarily passed on information to DCS. Whew, I told you it was complex. And even though we had to skip ahead a bit in the historical timeline to get an overview, we didn't even begin to scratch the surface. You can read a much more detailed history of that over on the CIA's official website, I'll include a link to it in the show notes for this episode at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Of course, there's always the idea that if indeed the CIA were involved, then of course they'd have something explaining their involvement. <laughs> That's how cover-ups work, after all. So, I'll leave that up to you on how much you want to believe is truth. Back in the movie, the climactic ending takes place during the trial of Clay Shaw. Jim Garrison lays out the evidence for the jury and makes his case. As a little side note, the trial was also where the public became aware of the Zapruder film for the first time. We've already talked about most of that evidence, including the now-famous Zapruder film. This trial did happen. To date, Clay Shaw is the only person to ever be put on trial for the assassination of President Kennedy. Even though he was the only person on trial, it's not like they thought he acted alone. Of course, Lee Harvey Oswald was named, along with David Ferry and some others. We haven't really talked much more about David Ferry. He's the character played by Joe Pesci, if you recall. But as a quick side note, the movie was correct in showing that he died during the timeline of the investigation. That happened on February 22, 1967, which was less than a week after the media broke the news that Jim Garrison was investigating the assassination. There was some suspicion around his death because the autopsy determined he died of natural causes, but they also found two suicide notes written when he was found dead. So which was it? Suicide or natural causes? Or was it that he planned on committing suicide and died of natural causes before he could? We don't know. Nothing could be proven either way. So by the time Clay Shaw was arrested and charged with conspiring to assassinate the president on March 1st, 1967, the two main co-conspirators named Lee Harvey Oswald and David Ferry were already dead. Almost two years after being arrested on January 29, 1969, the trial began. 
It lasted the entire month of February, and just like the movie shows, when the jury deliberated on March 1st, 1969, they came out only one hour later and acquitted Clay Shaw of the charges. Back in the movie, we see Kevin Costner's version of Jim Garrison get swarmed by reporters as he's leaving the courtroom. Answering questions about if he's going to resign or not, Jim says he's not going to resign. He'll run for district attorney again, and he'll win again, and he'll continue the investigation for another 30 years because that's what he owes to Jack Kennedy and the country. He did not continue the investigation that long. Jim Garrison was the district attorney in New Orleans until 1973 when he was tried for accepting bribes in an illegal pinball machine scandal. He was found not guilty, but that certainly hurt his public image, and he was defeated in a re-election campaign. As a fun little fact, the man who defeated him and became the new district attorney in New Orleans was Harry Connick Sr. Yes, that's the father of the singer. Back in the movie, after Jim is hounded by the media, their attention is drawn away as Clay Shaw leaves the courtroom. The horde of reporters migrate over to him, leaving Jim to walk down the hallway alone with his wife. Finally, some text scrolls up, giving us details about what happened after the investigation. First, it says that in 1979, a man named Richard Helms, who was the director of covert operations in 1963, admitted under oath that Clay Shaw had worked for the CIA. That's not really true. Some of it is. Richard Helms was indeed a deputy director for the CIA at the time, and he was deposed for a libel case related to a book called Coup d'etat in America. The part that's not true is about how he admitted that Clay Shaw worked for the CIA. What Richard really said was, quote, One time, as a businessman, Clay Shaw was one of the part-time contacts of the Domestic Contacts Division, end quote. We already learned about the DCS, Domestic Contacts Service, or Division, as Richard called it. We also learned that even though DCS was under the CIA, Clay Shaw was just one of thousands and thousands of American citizens who gave information to the DCS over the years. The next bit of text says that Clay Shaw died in 1974 of lung cancer and that no autopsy was allowed. That's true. Well, maybe. Clay Shaw did die in 1974, and it is true that Clay Shaw was buried before an autopsy could be performed. Some people have suggested perhaps this was on purpose, to cover a more mysterious cause of death. But as far as I can tell in my research, there's never been any proof of that. Here's a brief excerpt from the police report from the officers who arrived on scene after Clay's death. Although the exact cause of Mr. Shaw's death could never be determined without the results of an autopsy, it is clearly evident that Mr. Shaw's condition was terminal. During the week prior to his death, he was seen by his attending physician and was being made as comfortable as possible. As of the completion of this report, no evidence has been found to indicate that Mr. Shaw's death was anything but natural. Final classification to be made by the Orleans Parish Coroner's Office. His official cause of death was lung cancer, something attributed to his being a chain smoker. If you recall, Tommy Lee Jones' version of Clay is almost always smoking a cigarette when we see him. Another bit of text in the movie says that between the years 1976 and 1979, a congressional investigation found a, quote, probable conspiracy, end quote, in the assassination of President Kennedy. But then it says, as of 1991, when the movie was released, nothing has been done about it. As is the case for most of the facts throughout the movie, we're split with some truth and some 
well, a stretching of that truth. With that said, the statement in the movie is closer to straight truth. Now, there was a committee that looked into the assassination. Their report was released in 1979. It's way too long to include here. For example, just their summary of findings is four pages long. But here's a couple of the findings that I think are relevant. The Federal Bureau of Investigation failed to investigate adequately the possibility of a conspiracy to assassinate the president. The Warren Commission failed to investigate adequately the possibility of a conspiracy to assassinate the president. Scientific acoustical evidence establishes a high probability that two gunmen fired at President John F. Kennedy. Other scientific evidence does not preclude the possibility of two gunmen firing at the president. Scientific evidence negates some specific conspiracy allegations. The committee believes, on the basis of the evidence available to it, that President John F. Kennedy was probably assassinated as a result of a conspiracy. The committee is unable to identify the other gunmen or the extent of the conspiracy. Wow. I mean, that's pretty crazy, right? The findings go on to say that based on evidence, they don't believe the Soviet or Cuban government were involved. It also didn't believe anti-Castro groups were involved or a national syndicate of organized crime. And last, but certainly not least, the movie gets its bubble burst a bit when the report mentioned it also did not believe the CIA was involved in the assassination at all. I'll include a link to their official report in the show notes so you can check it out yourself. Even though the movie says nothing was done since the movie's release in 1991, there was a scientific study on the audio ballistics done in 1982. We didn't talk about it at all because none of this is shown in the movie, but there was a police motorcycle that happened to have its microphone open at the time. So they studied the audio with the idea that if there were gunshots, it could be heard on the audio. Basically, that report indicated that there wasn't anything that would support the conclusion of a second shooter. The final bit of text on screen in the movie says that the files of the House Select Committee on Assassinations are locked away until the year 2029. That's not true, but of course, there's no way the movie could know this. Those files were supposed to be released in 2029, but after the movie was released, that changed. The movie spawned such a resurgence into the assassination of JFK that there was a new pressure to release previously top-secret documents. Then, on October 26, 1992, Congress passed the President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992. As part of the act, a board was set up to determine what they should do with the documents. For four years, between 1994 and 1998, the board met and tried to figure out what they should do. Finally, they determined that documents should be released by October of 2017. If you recall from a couple years ago when there was a massive dump of new JFK files released, that was a result of the board's decision. What you may not know, though, is that the board itself was a direct result of the 1991 movie JFK. Here's a section from their final report. The suspicions created by government secrecy eroded confidence in the truthfulness of of federal agencies in general and damaged their credibility. Finally, frustrated by the lack of access and disturbed by the conclusions of Oliver Stone's JFK, Congress passed 
the President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992, mandating the gathering and opening of all records concerned with the death of the President. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. Whether or not you believe the conspiracy shown in the movie, there's little doubt that the film sparked a new interest in the assassination. New evidence came to light, and as we learned at the end there, the government itself felt pressured to release a ton of documents, more than 2,800 previously classified documents relating to the assassination of President Kennedy were released toward the end of 2017. There's so much more to this story. So many other theories, hypotheses, and evidence that could be an entire podcast series by itself. However, if you want to learn more about this particular theory that director Oliver Stone was trying to get across in his film, then I'd recommend reading the two books he based the movie on. One of them is called Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy by Jim Mars. And the other is called On the Trail of the Assassins by none other than the real person that Kevin Costner played in the movie, Jim Garrison. Even if you don't believe Jim Garrison's version of the story, it's worth checking out those books to uncover a different angle maybe you hadn't thought of before. And, of course, don't stop there. There are countless books and resources out there. As always, I've got links to Jim Mars and Jim Garrison's books as well as plenty more resources to start your own deep dive into the assassination of President John F. Kennedy over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Lee Harvey Oswald was killed just days after the assassination of JFK. Number two, Jim Garrison received top-secret information from a man only known as X. Number three. To date, Clay Shaw is the only person put on trial for the assassination of JFK. Did you find out which one is a lie? As we learned, Oswald was shot and killed by Jack Ruby just two days after the assassination of JFK. So, number one is true. We also learned that even though Jim Garrison believed Clay Shaw was one person in a greater conspiracy, with Oswald and David Ferry both dead before the trial began, that means Clay Shaw is, at least as of this recording, the only person to have ever been put on trial for JFK's assassination. So number three is true. So that means the lie is number two. The secretive character only known as X in the movie was based on Air Force Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty, but Jim Garrison didn't get tips from Colonel Prouty. That brings us to an end of this episode. If you're a Based on a True Story producer, I look forward to chatting with you again next Monday when we'll look at some of the true story that we saw in the very fictional superhero movie, Wonder Woman. Don't forget, you can find all the links for this episode or request a future episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter where I'm at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B, or you can shoot me an email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. If I don't hear from you before then, I hope to chat with you again next Monday over on the producer's feed. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.